it just gets on my nerves when these guys are on the, the news and saying, yeah, just lock it down, man. Just like do it. Lock it down. I'm like, what do they have to lose? Most of the people that are most vocal about it, they're not getting a cut in their salary. In fact, maybe they're getting more attention. Real folk are like having to choose between homeschooling their kid or, or going to work. You know what I'm saying? Real folk don't always have that option to stay home because they're an essential worker and need to get your Uber Eats out there because they're on the margins. So for people to just sit there on their Zoom chair and try and dictate policy without having a perspective of those that are hit the hardest with creases me. But uh, I could talk your ear off about this all day. Welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Walker. As a former naturopathic doctor and anthropologist, I align the intersection of personal performance, purpose, and innovative thinking in badass women working to change the world as entrepreneurs and go-getters. Anthropology is the study and science of what makes an entrepreneur think, feel, and perform in a path compelled by a vision for helping others, solving problems, while building a life on your own terms. Together, we are exploring the health, mindset, and strategies that distinguish the world's best entrepreneurs. This is the Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to episode 260 of the Anthropology Podcast. I am your host, Megan Walker, and I am really excited to introduce you to my guest today. I reached out to him on Instagram after hearing him on the news, after devouring his content, after literally binge listening to his TikTok channel, along with 260,000 other individuals, because what Dr. Kweijo Kiramenting was doing was providing a framework for conversation about our path forward. As a palliative care and intensive care physician, with the Ottawa Hospital, as himself a podcast host, someone used to communicating with people about complex problems and how we find innovative solutions, I really felt he was the perfect guest with a unique capacity for insight to lead us in and through a conversation around what the next phase of the pandemic could look like. I did not think I would be leading these types of conversations. But the more I observed the apprehension and the fear and the polarization that was existing around the psychology of the pandemic, around the health illiteracy that is pervasive through our society, I truly felt compelled not to create a series of podcasts that were about opinions, but to create a series of podcasts that would provide a framework for thinking for all of us, a critical capacity for us all to look at and analyze the facts and the complexity of the situation that we have in front of us. And so through a series of these episodes and with compelling guests and with conversations that are grounded in an intention for a powerful way to move forward, I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today, a forward-thinking physician, someone who has been on the front lines of this pandemic, who truly understands what is happening on the ground and has a vision for how we can step forward. It is my pleasure to introduce you 
to Dr. Kwejo Kiramenting. Dr. Kwajo Kiramenting, welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. Bam, bam, bam. I'm so excited, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I know we were trying to dance and make this happen earlier, and I apologize with the scheduling, but we are here now. You are a busy man. You are up to so many things. And the reason I reached out to you, I want everyone to know, half the time when I say I've got a guest on, everyone expects me to say, we met at a pool in a conference, and we didn't. I reached out to you on Instagram because I had been so compelled and inspired by the consistency of your messaging and the level-headedness of your messaging with respect to the management and navigation of COVID uh, that I invited you onto the podcast in the spirit of really creating a language and framework for people to think about risk and their health moving forward because we are entering a new phase of the pandemic. And so before we do that, I'm wondering, can you share with my listeners a little bit more about yourself and why you are so uniquely qualified to carry this conversation? I don't know where to start. Born and raised in Edmonton, did medical school at the University of Alberta. Prior to that, I was a bartender where I met my wife. For the record, she picked me up and then moved to Ottawa for internal medicine training. And later on, did further training in palliative care and intensive care medicine. And then I did a master's of health administration, MHA, and was very clinical. I did a lot of seeing patients for the beginning of my career. I worked in Belleville, aka Belle Vegas. I was in Sault Ste. Marie, started out at L'Hôpital Montfort, Montfort Hospital, then eventually landed at the Ottawa Hospital, done some administrative roles in terms of quality and safety lead. Then eventually, just a few months ago, took over for department head here. And what else can I tell you? Done a lot of research, started Resource Optimization Network, which is a, a research group where we look at how we can make healthcare more sustainable. So we're just looking at ways essentially to give high quality of care, but at the same time, reduce spending. I mean, I'm trying to give the concise version, Megan, so I don't know if that uh, <laughs> y'all could uh, help me fill in the gaps. It's amazing because what it does is it credentials your background for a really unique angle on this conversation. And, you know, one of the things that I think has been happening for a lot of people is we don't know what happens behind the scenes. We don't know what happens once people enter the hospital system during this time. They become a statistic that's shared on the news. And, and I, I feel like what we do is we surmise and create these stories in between to make all of this start to make sense. And I think you're in a really unique position to start to share with us a little bit about what is happening behind the scenes, speaking to some of the granularity with respect to the health of the individuals who are ending up in the ICU. So as a consumer of media, we hear these numbers, there's 400 people in the ICU, there's 500 people. And I'm just so deeply curious. I'm like, is it more men or women? What age demographic are we seeing? What are the comorbidities and health status of these individuals? This notion of you're vaxxed or unvaxxed as if it is the most important predisposition for one's health in today's day and age, I feel like is a complete simplification for where we're at. Can you just shed some light, like lift the veil on what you're seeing in your ICU? I love this question because of late I've been getting a lot of online drop kicks in the chest and I always remind people that I've lived COVID for two years. I was there for our very first patient at General Hospital in Ottawa when they got wheeled through the door. I felt the anxiety. I felt the nerves. I felt that fear of, are we going to all get it? Are we going to look like New York? Am I going to pass along to my family members? Is this it? You know, like we all felt that. And I'll tell you, Megan, soon after taking care of a few patients, 
you realize there was a very common thread, like COVID discriminated. And the way it discriminated was if you were extreme of age, if you were immunocompromised, in other words, if you had a poor immune system, like if you were on chemotherapy or something. The other factors were metabolic syndrome, meaning like obesity, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure was an extremely common thread amongst our patients. To put into perspective, like, you, you know, this might be taboo to say it, Megan, but I have yet to take care of an absolutely healthy person in the ICU on a ventilator because of COVID. Like legit, in two years, I haven't said, you know, this person has no risk factors. This is a marathon runner. I'm not saying this is this hasn't happened in the pandemic. I'm sure it has. I'm saying I have yet to take care of somebody where I couldn't point to a finger towards a, a risk factor. So this was one of those things where pre-vaccine, I felt extremely motivated to talk about getting people healthier, getting them think about what they're eating, staying active, make sure their stress levels are down, they're sleeping well. Like this is a huge opportunity for public health to motivate people to get moving because not only would that improve their risk of COVID, but it would also improve their risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer outcomes. Like everything gets better if you're healthier. This is one of the missed opportunities. Then the vaccines came and it did change the landscape completely. I'll tell you right now, Megan, there were miracles. Like in, in the sense that when it came to those that are at high risk, it really reduced your risk of landing in hospital. Not contracting COVID as we saw with Omicron, like you could be double, triple vax, still get Omicron. Because of the vaccines, your risk of landing in the hospital and seeing myself was significantly lower. And that was a miracle of these things. That was a major risk factor moving forward. But still, with those that were unvaccinated, those that were high risk, there's still the risk factors when you're metabolically unhealthy, you're immunocompromised, extreme of age, there's still risk factors. So there's still that narrative of like, let's, why not try and get healthy right now? I've yet to walk into a room and say like, whoa, this is odd. I can't believe this patient has COVID on a ventilator. And so that's why I think that perspective that this is a very unique perspective for myself, because when you're hearing on the media, this like 25 year olds being scared that they're going to die from COVID, that's a rare thing. And the ones that we saw that were extremely young were extremely obese. It was a huge component of, of why they were landing in, in the intensive care unit was their body mass index or their, the, the level of obesity. So, Why do you think we're not talking about that detail when we're releasing a picture of what's happening with respect to COVID? Do you feel like it would compromise the push for people to become vaccinated? Is it just too complicated an issue for public health to drive right now? What are some of your insights and perspectives on that? One concern was like fat shaming, you know, it's something that I've been seeing a lot of like that argument against pointing toward the metabolic health side, uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes being risk factors. That was one component. There was a, a maternalistic approach to a lot of the pandemic saying, oh, you can't be too honest with people or they'll take things for granted. Almost like we need to continue that fear narrative to be able to make sure people stay in line. And what I've always said is like, if you're not upfront with people, you're going to lose that trust. And when you really need them to listen, there's no buy-in. Like if you're upfront and saying like, this is why we think you need to be vaccinated. These are the risk factors we also see in terms of people landing in ICU. We're learning as we go and being as upfront and authentic and transparent as possible. That, that's, the, that's the leadership I listen to. That's the person I listen to. And I'll go to bat for somebody that's clearly looking out for my best interest, but being honest with me. Throughout this pandemic, I've heard from other MDs saying like, 
you're downplaying it too much. You can't, like, if you're downplaying it too much, you're putting people at risk. They won't listen. I counter with people need honesty. I feel like we see this with Canadian weather. When we call for a snowstorm every day and all we get is the sprinkling, people are like, forget it. I'm not even, I'm not even putting on my snow tires anymore. I don't hear you guys. And I see and feel that on the ground, on the other side of pieces. And, you know, I shared with you as we were walking into this, that what I wanted this conversation to be was a framework for thinking moving forward to really start to clarify some of the facts on where we are at today. And just for everyone's reference, it is February 7th, 2022, when we are recording this. And so where we're at right now with respect to vaccines and the definition of efficacy with respect to vaccines, can we just clarify some pieces? Will getting vaccinated confer safety to those around us? At this point, the way I look at the vaccine is it is protecting the individual. We were seeing data that you're still transmitting despite being double or triple vaxxed. So when you're really looking at what is the need for vaccination, it's really to protect the individual. Initially, when we were all getting vaccinated, the dialogue was, we do get vaccinated to reduce transmissibility. In other words, now that I'm vaccinated, I'm much less likely to pass it along to grandma. But we're seeing that as you progress away from your second or third dose, unfortunately, you'll still transmit the virus. The logic is you are protecting yourself by getting vaccinated. You're protecting yourself in the sense of reducing your risk of getting severely ill. And severely ill means landing in hospital, landing in ICU, or dying from COVID. And so the converse would also be true. This idea of individuals saying, I don't want to be around someone who's not vaccinated. That's unfair to me. Is there any logic to that argument at this point, given what we know? Yeah, I mean, I think unless everybody is really close to their time of dose, so like their second or third dose, your antibody titers are probably at its peak or like peaking, and maybe you're going to reduce transmission to a certain degree. But the data certainly is implying that that ability to reduce transmission certainly wanes over time. And so big picture. What I always tell people is you are going to get COVID at some point. Don't fool yourself. It's not going anywhere. The vaccines at this point aren't preventing you from getting infected, meaning you could still swab positive on your PCR or your rapid antigen test, but you are way less likely to get sick. And by sick, I mean in hospital, ICU, or dying. You know, as we're facing this transition and, and to that point, this waning antibody, I think part of the conversation for people as well then maybe we're going to be in a position where we're repetitively boosting in an attempt to maintain those levels. And I think one of the elephants in the room right now, and I think the report came out last week commenting that it is an estimated 4 million Ontarians who contracted Omicron during this most recent wave. And that means in my books, we have 4 million people who have antibodies against COVID. And yet I feel like we are not speaking to policy decisions that necessarily reflect those types of numbers. Can you just share with people what this means, this idea of natural immunity and acquiring it and how the immune system responds? Your antibody response, which is your immediate, I'm going to fight off this infection. There's a longer term response called like your T cell response, for example, which is what really fights off the severe infection, the risk of severe infection. You know, if you're like 70 or less, you got two doses, your risk of getting severely ill despite your antibody counts, are is still low. Like you still have that ability to fight off a severe infection. 
antibodies, when we talk about antibody titers or antibody levels, that's, that's only one level of your immune response. Getting back to that natural infection, I don't have a good reason why we haven't included that in our analysis or interpretation. Like if you're in Europe right now and you have a natural infection and you're in a place that uses vaccine passports or immunity passports, you're good for six months. To put it into context, I've yet to see somebody with a second COVID infection and land in ICU. I haven't seen that. I'm sure it's happened somewhere, but I haven't even heard of this. One thing that I think will change the landscape is we have hybrid immunity now. So a lot of people, you mentioned the potential 4 million Ontarians, they'll have double or triple vaccinations. Then they'll also have natural infection with Omicron or Delta, whatever they had. And what we've seen in the literature is that hybrid immunity is like super immunity. It's like immunity on steroids. It's like you've had multiple antigen exposure. It's like you've had multiple ways of fighting off infection. And so I'm really curious to how policymakers and the science community are going to approach things in the future. Because in my humble opinion, the need for boosters for low-risk population after this is really going to have to put some thought into that. Because once again, you have that super immunity. But uh, this is a million-dollar question that we, we haven't talked about much in the medical community yet. Or at least Med Twitter hasn't hit it hard yet. Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm one of those people in this super immune status. I had my two vaccines. We all got Omicron the second week of January. The only logical place we can assume we picked it up was at the bank when we went and sat for an hour opening accounts for our kids. And so for me, it's really interesting listening to, I mean, understanding the science and appreciating the complexity of policy that needs to be created right now. It's really difficult for someone who had basically asymptomatic infection. I caught it on a home antigen test, a rapid antigen test to, to be like running out to get a booster. It just defies it defies the science and the literature at this present time. And I actually am flabbergasted. We're not speaking to this in our daily debriefs and media because it affects a significant percentage of the population. And I suspect subsequent to that, our trust in these public health measures, to your point earlier. Recently, NASI was saying you were going to wait, did I say three months? I want to say three months post-infection at this point. It's evolving, but yeah, it's I hope we're studying this. I hope we're evaluating this because you got to think about, you know, what does the data tell us and what does the science tell us? And it's a hard landscape to navigate. We, I mean, we just did an op-ed on trying to take the politics out of this bad boy. It's really been driving a lot of how we've approached this and pulling away from the science. It's, it's a tough situation. It's a tough situation. And I want to speak to this idea of navigating the science because that's really what it comes down to. And one might argue... Megan, just go get your booster. You're otherwise healthy. You're probably going to be fine. But what's interesting is starting to look at some of the emerging literature, particular around kids, of boosting them in a post-infection environment. And we're not necessarily seeing optimal outcomes for that. We are seeing increased risk of adverse events when that's starting to happen. And this is maybe less of a question and more of a, of a comment, and I'd love for you to jump in, on the grayness of science, that science is really just a framework and lens through which we can observe and try to understand the natural world. Science, in my experience, is not definitively black and white. Are you experiencing that on the daily basis as a clinician as well? Yeah, 100%. And this is where I think, to be honest with you, I think this is where science is going, like where you need to personalize your therapeutics, your interventions, and so forth. Because, I mean, if you look at the way they design studies, it'd be like you bring in I'm just using random numbers, 10,000 patients and 5,000 gets aspirin, the other 5,000 don't get aspirin. 
and there's a X percentage improvement in cardiovascular outcomes, for example. There's going to be a specific individual that was going to benefit, and there's going to be a specific individual that doesn't. And we don't often ask the question, what makes that person react? What's going to be that person that's going to be benefited? It's the same with when we look at booster benefit. Like if you look at it, depending on how you do your study, where we're seeing the booster benefit is really in our elderly population, right? And so if you do a study that you look at different age brackets, you're not necessarily going to see that. So I'm always asking the question, if there's an intervention and maybe it does benefit, let's ask ourselves who specifically will benefit. Like, let's try and personalize it. And that's where I think a lot of the black and white and gray comes in. And then like, how many times have we done the study? I mean, in my, in my line of work, one big study shows it benefit. Then another big study shows it doesn't benefit. And, and it's like, so what do you do? <laughs> Definitely there's not as much black and white answers within our field that we would hope. Speaking to this idea of not everyone is the same. And so notwithstanding those who are immunocompromised, metabolically unstable, elderly, what does the path forward look like from your perspective? We're entering this new phase of the pandemic. Let's assume in this theoretical question that all politics remains aside. We're really just looking at science and risk mitigation for the average person. What do you want to say to this average, truly healthy person about the next phase and how they protect themselves? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say a few things. One, there should be a lot of hope. Like I think in terms of what we're learning from Omicron, like for some reason it's controversial to say this, but it's milder relative to the other variants and more contagious, obviously, as we've talked about. And this is kind of par for the course when it comes to future variants, that it's looking to continue to live. So it's usually typically will get less deadly, but more contagious. So that's one thing to consider. We also consider the fact that we talk about this hybrid immunity because of all the vaccinations and the amount of people exposed to Omicron. But the path forward in general, before talking about the healthy people, is that we need to focus on who lands in ICU and making sure they have the interventions necessary to prevent them from landing in ICU. So when I look at this, when I tell you older, metabolically unhealthy, immunocompromised, when they swap positive, I want to make sure that, well, before that, I want to make sure that they had available to them boosters and so forth. When they swap positive, I want to make sure they have access to therapeutics such as monoclonal antibodies. They work. They have access to Paxlovid or the oral antiviral, very effective. Fluvoxamine and antidepressant significantly reduce risk of hospitalization. All these therapeutics are available. Budesonide, a, a puffer, was showing a, potentially some promise. So let's intervene. Let's provide them with the means to, to prevent them from landing in, in hospital and be active with it. Like if I'm a renal transplant patient, I should have as many rapid tests as I want at home. I should have a one number to call to say, hey, I swap positive. What should I do? Come here for monoclonal. Come here. We'll go to the pharmacy and pick up your Paxlovid. Like something. Like make it easy. Streamline. Know your risk. And those that are young, healthy, I just encourage you to live your life. You listen to what public health is guiding you, continue to be healthy, to focus on what's working for you, keep moving, think about, you know, stay away from processed food, stay away from the middle sections of the aisle, make sure to get your sleep on, well hydrated, hang around with people that make you happy and make you grow and live life. Enjoy this next phase. I'll tell you what I'm really worried about is the level of anxiety and mental health concerns moving forward. I think we need to come at it with a little bit of momentum. Like when we're pulling out of this, I want it to come out with energy. I want us to come in and celebrate and, and say like, you know what? 
We are on recovery mode. We are going to live life to the fullest. We're going to do our best to try and catch our kids up when it comes to education, address their mental health needs. Like I think we should try and have this momentous shift and lift our society up, our country, our province, whatever it might be. Look around you right now. People are struggling and they're angry. We need to do better. It's just wild what, where we are and where we need to get to. I appreciate that. And as you're talking, I'm like, I, I feel that hope and I feel that excitement for coming out on the other side. I'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to do overseas work. And I find it was always the reintegration that was really challenging. It was hard to come home. It was hard to move back into normal. And I think people understanding their risks in a really pragmatic way is really helpful. And one of the categories of risk we didn't address in that are the kids. Do they fall into this high-risk group of immunocompromised individuals or are kids in a different boat all on their own? I'll be just frank. Like This is one of the blessings of COVID is that kids are really protected, relatively speaking. Can you imagine if this was hitting our kids hard? Like It would be so, it'd be just such a different tone. You know, for me, this was one of the things that was really reassuring when you start to see the data with kids initially less likely to transmit, less likely to get sick, like all these positive factors when it came to children. And so I must say, like, you know, I've been pretty vocal proponent of getting kids back to normal life, getting kids back to school. And I'll tell you, my concerns with kids has been exceedingly low. Like I've been like, get them to school, get them back to hockey, get them back to their basketball, baseball. They'll be fine for the most part. And, you know, you can't say there's there's absolutes. There's always exceptions. Your kid's immunocompromised. If you've got obesity as well, diabetes, I think those are, you know, you're on a different scale. If you've got neuromuscular disease or chronic respiratory problems, like this is a different disease for you. But your average healthy child, luckily, it, they've been really well protected. And one of the things that we just need to take advantage of and, and really celebrate. And whenever I give a talk to whomever, school board or public health, I say, like, just realize that you driving your kid to whatever activity poses a higher risk than them dying of COVID. Think about how you feel when you drive your kid to XYZ. You're not thinking, oh my God, like this is the end of the world or whatever. And this is like pre-Omicron, pre-less variant. Hopefully that puts things into context, but this is where, at least where my head's at. What's funny, my husband and I were talking the other day and just talking about our, our anxieties for our kids in general right now. And he said, I am more concerned that these kids haven't had like any sort of microbiome infusion from other oh kids like they've thing. had no germs they've had like no one coughing on them they're not licking their desks anymore like this is so important for a developing immune system and we are putting them in these tiny little bubbles, bubbles. and it's we're moving into that that next phase these are things as parents we actually we never talked about this before we never talked about gosh like how do i get them exposed to germs because it was just part of their life but now we have We've actually removed them from that important part. It's a developmental milestone immunologically. Yeah, there's a, we call it the immunity debt. Like you, when we're seeing high levels of RSV that you were seeing in the fall in different parts of the world, like that was the theory that the kids haven't been exposed to other viruses and so forth that, you know, they have immature immune systems. Yeah, we just need to always think that whatever actions we have has consequences and, and really think, do the actions warrant you know, the consequences that they're going to deal with. So I 100% am with you. Moving forward for all of us, 
What questions would you want us as consumers of healthcare to be asking public health or our physicians about entering this next phase? I think that the quality of our life is tied to the quality of our questions, and it's not what new protective gear do I need? What type of questions should we be asking so that we move forward in the most informed way possible? Yeah, I mean, if it was a simple framework, it would just be pushing people to say, what what are the risks of any intervention that is on the table? And what are the consequences, including unintended consequences potentially by these interventions? And always pushing, like when it comes to talking heads that you see on whatever, is always asking them, okay, if we go with your plan, Pushing them is like, is this sustainable? What you're proposing, can we keep doing this? You know, these people that are saying, oh, we need uh, to shut down schools again. We need to just shut down the gyms. We need to shut down the economy one more time. Ask them, what do you, what's your plan for the next variant? What's your plan for the next pandemic? Because this is garbage what's happening right now. It's not sustainable. And it's having colossal collateral damage. The mental health of our kids, the physical health, the ability to socialize, like all that stuff is generational impact. And then you look at what the risk is to the kids. When you reflect on this, it's nonsense. The way we treated our kids has been absolute garbage. It's been absolute garbage. So like to keep that in mind to say, okay, you go with your plan, but how do, what do we do next time? You want to keep doing this? Because it's not working. It's not working for me. It's not working for society. It's not working for our youth. Push them. Because, you know, there has to be a legit out. There has to be an out to get us back to normal. Otherwise, like, why do all the sacrifice? And so, once again, going on a little bit of a tangent, it just gets on my nerves when these guys are on the, the news and saying, yeah, just lock it down, man. Just like, let's do it. Lock it down. I'm like, and the other thing to ask yourself is, what do they have to lose? Most of the people that are most vocal about it, they're not getting a cut in their salary. In fact, maybe they're getting more attention. Real folk are like having to choose between homeschooling their kid or, or going to work. You know what I'm saying? Real folk don't always have that option to stay home because they're an essential worker and need to get your Uber Eats out there because they're on the margins. You know what I'm saying? So for people to just sit there on their Zoom chair and try and dictate policy without having a perspective of those that are hit the hardest with creases me. It really does crease me. It's a lack of perspective. But complex complex problems require sophisticated solutions. And I think we're both frustrated with this really simplistic thinking or the... It's lazy. It's lazy thinking. It's unsophisticated. And it's perpetuating this anger and this division and all sorts of crumbling challenges on the ground for everyday people. It saddens me. It is going to take generations to unpack the amount of anger and the division and the politics of families as a result of these unsophisticated solutions, if and especially if they are pushed moving forward. I want your perspective on one last thing before I make a, a transition in the interview. And that is so much of this argument is really how do we preserve our healthcare system. So part of this is, you know, we're all in this together. We've got to keep the healthcare system safe and functioning. As someone who is working inside the healthcare system and has been from the beginning, and I know you have a lot to say, and this is part of your personal passion. How do we get innovative about this? How do we increase capacity in the healthcare system without shutting down society? Yeah, I got a, a million ideas. So 
in 30 seconds or less. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I could be concise. You need to invest a lot more in prevention. Like, the, you know, if you really want someone to, you know, avoid, like when you come into an ICU, you're looking at $3,000 a day. First of all, it's 1% of your gross domestic product before the baby boomers have come in too. So that'll probably go up. A long admission into hospital, rehabilitation, PTSD, all these kind of bad things happen to you. So like, let's focus on trying to like prevent you from coming into hospital, make your city more walkable, promote healthy living, promote local foods, less processed foods, like really think about and invest in this. And I'll, I could promise you it's going to go a long way. We need to be more innovative in how we provide care. Like a lot of, you know, in my world, I think we underutilize some specific staff like personal support workers. I would ramp that up. They, they get trained in a year. You could ramp that up easy in a short period of time and have them more active in the care that they provide within hospitals. You should physically think about increased capacity, especially as baby boomers are, are, are getting of age where they'll be needing things. Using virtual health to uh, like specifically within inpatients, like no reason I can't support an ICU in Pembroke or wherever when we have these virtual formats. Um, using AI and some machine learning technology to predict before someone gets sick. This is some of the work that we're doing that I love in terms of, you know, before you get sick enough to need an ICU or deteriorate, let's intervene earlier. And this stuff that even, even imagine wearables at home using that kind of AI tech to kind of predict the need to be hospitalized or be seen and, and to be able to intervene earlier. This is the time to think and invest in such creative solutions. But those are the top, well, whatever number that was, four or five. But uh, I could talk your ear off about this all day. Well, this is where it gets exciting. And uh, there's huge opportunity to lend more innovation and entrepreneurial thinking into our healthcare system without the threat of it all becoming private. Infusing entrepreneurial thinking into this is about innovation and care mm -hmm. delivery, which is, which is my jam and exciting spot too. Before we go off topic, because everyone was looking for this framework, I want to make a transition in the interview to something I call our impact metrics. So I've got four, I call them rapid fire questions, but as I ask them, I realized they're like, we could do a whole podcast on each of them, but we're going to keep them in rapid format. And my first question for you, what is the biggest personal lesson you have learned moving through the pandemic over the last two years? This might seem off the cuff, but finding what your, where your true values are to be able to use that as a kind of like strength and to do the right thing, like it's been huge for me. When I saw BIPOC community being hit hardest within the, when it comes to COVID outcomes, when I was seeing how they're being impacted through our restrictions, when I've seen our children being impacted by school closures, it's hard when you're in the limelight a little bit to say that I'm not a guy that seeks it. I, I was extremely motivated when my values is like, you do the right thing. You stick up for those that can't stick up for themselves. Justice. And to sit on the sidelines while all this BS was happening to our youth, to our marginalized communities, when you got a platform to do something about it, all of this has been worth the heat, the fear of being canceled, the... So I get a little weepy-eyed thinking about it because it's it's been an absolute roller coaster with this stuff. But at the end of the day, when you get a letter saying, our kids thank you for doing the advocacy when you've done all the press and stuff and you hear that January 17th schools are opening like it's it was absolutely worth it absolutely worth it so maybe not a typical answer but there it is I never want the typical the typical answer 
What is your favorite health hack? Health hack? Oh, man, there's mm-hmm. a few. I'm, I'm going to give you two. Intermittent fasting. It's not for everybody, but if, if it's in your wheelhouse, like we're at one o'clock, I haven't had lunch yet or food yet. I'm still going. That's why I'm milking this coffee. But for insulin resistance, for me maintaining weight, being practical, love working out in a fasted state. Best results so far have been doing the fasted state. If you're looking to lose weight, what a great method, honestly. So if I had to, if 80-20 when it comes to diet or like uh, some way to approach food, that would be that. Or just staying away from processed food, but that's not always easy for everybody. And then the other one's high interval, high intensity interval training. You could bust out a workout in seven minutes and like you're good. I mean, it feels, it's painful, but it's bam, like it's done. I've got a 15-minute hit workout scheduled for later Love today. It. Love it. And last question for you, entrepreneurship. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? I mean, I feel like a lot of this stuff, you, you, you're not necessarily born. It's like a, it's environment. I, I don't know the answer. For me, I feel like it, I wouldn't say it was something I was necessarily born with, but I don't know. There was always a lure to, like I did my minor in economics. My research is on cost utilized, like uh, how to save money. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what, to, you know, I've now come from a family of, of accountants and business people and entrepreneurs. So uh, yeah, it's a good question. I, I, if I had to give a single answer, I'd say you, you don't need to be born with it. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. And I hope it's the start of so many more. Dr. Karamenting, where can we send people to learn more about the amazing work that you're putting oh, in? Oh, shit. Oh, this, sorry. Can you cuss on the show? I, I could not. I won't cuss. <laughs> we won't say that. I didn't cuss. Anyways, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I think you could find us uh, several places. So SolvingHealthcare.ca is our podcast. Solving Wellness is our, our wellness platform. You can find me on... Uh, at Quadcast, K-W-A-D-C-A-S-T, on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. The man doesn't sleep. Yeah, wherever you find podcasts, wherever you find uh, your social media, we're, we're everywhere. Well, that was another big one, wasn't it? Here's what I'm going to just say moving forward. If First of all, if you enjoyed this episode, if you found it insightful, I would really encourage you to share this with a friend. Like I said, our intention, my intention with these podcasts is really to have a framework for thinking moving forward so that we can reintegrate into our new version of this world, really with a a capacity and ability to think critically about the information. And it's going to come at us fast and furiously about the information moving in our direction. I want to have more of these conversations, not just about this, but about life. I love these framework conversations, big picture opportunities for us to think about complex problems in a unique way. If this is something you are interested in as well, you're going to want to come and hang out with us over in our Facebook community called the Anthropology Collective. And this is a space that I promise you is going to shift and evolve over the coming weeks. I've alluded to this, but we've got, we've got, I say we, but I mean I, I've got some big changes in the works. I've got some serious things that I am going to announce uh, to this community and to my listeners in the coming weeks, more specifically around the spring equinox. So I want you to keep your ears peeled. I want you to stay connected to what we are up to. And one of the best ways to do that is to join us in our anthropology collective over on Facebook. I'm wishing you all an amazing and impactful week ahead. I am your host, Megan Walker, and I will see you again next week. 